Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning to those of you uh, following along online, and a very warm welcome to you uh, here in the building. Great to have you with us this morning to worship God. This Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And so we will light a candle later in the service as we think of the hope of our coming Savior, the Lord Jesus. But before we do any of that, we are here for one reason, and that is to worship God. So let us calm our hearts, calm our busy minds and our restless souls and come to worship him. Let us lift our eyes to him as we dwell on the majesty of Christ, as he calls all people from every place to worship him and praise him. Let me read as we start our time from Psalm 67, as we think of that truth. The words should be on the screen there. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest, God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Let's pray together as we think of these words. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be gracious to us, that you would bless us, that your face would shine on us as we give you honor and praise and worship. Help us to steady our hearts, to calm our minds, that we would be able to give you the worship due your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now I'm going to invite uh, John and Barbara Billet up, uh, who are going to, to light our Advent, calendar, uh, Advent candle uh, as we think of the hope uh, that our Lord Jesus brings into the world. Prepare the way of the Lord. We light this candle in hope, the hope of our coming Saviour, Jesus. Prepare then the way of the Lord. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, our God, our Father in heaven, thank you for the privileges that we share as your children, that those of us who trust in our Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we give you thanks and praise as we welcome you as we welcome you into our lives and as we come into your presence as your children, your beloved children. And we thank you that, that you are the, not only the Lord who is gracious, who, are, who is our heavenly father, but that you are the maker, the creator, and the sustainer 
of all things in the universe. That by your powerful word, you create and hold all things together. Thank you that you are without restriction or boundary, that you are the eternal, everlasting God from all eternity, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, that you hold everything together and that we cannot comprehend the vastness of your being as you surpass all time and nature. We praise your holy and wondrous name. And Lord, as the maker of all things, we pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us when we have not let you be God, but rather we have defied you and sought to be God ourselves. Forgive us when we have not trusted you as the Lord of all, thinking that we are the sovereign one, leading us into a war of stress and anxiety as we fight to control other people and other circumstances in our lives. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us when we have not walked in your ways, which lead to life, but have walked in our own ways, which take life. We pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us when the times that we have looked lustfully, when we have spoken harshly, when we have cursed or used your name in vain, when we have lied and we have spoken falsely of other people. Lord, we deserve to be judged for our heinous sins against you. But we look to our Lord Jesus, who was judged in our place, who took the full judgment of God upon himself on the cross, that we would receive your pardon and love instead. And we give you heartfelt thanks and praise. We thank you that your love is not like ours, as it ebbs and flows like the waves of the sea. But we thank you that you are faithful and constant in your love of us as we look to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, that we can come in to your holy presence. Thank you, Lord. And we pray for the word as it is read by Simon and Claire, that it would speak to us this morning, that you would speak to us this morning. And we pray for Saab as he comes to preach. May he do so powerfully and boldly. May you speak to us through his words that we would receive it with humble and soft hearts, that you would produce a harvest in us, 30, 60, 100 fold. And we pray all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And now I'm going to invite up Simon and Claire, who will give us their Bible reading, and Sarah will come to preach. The reading is starting in Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 12 to 19. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, 
and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. Now we're going to jump forwards to chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Simon Clare, thank you so much indeed for reading for us this morning.
before I speak, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you that it is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us as we come to your word this morning, quicken our minds. Pray that we would be alert and ready to hear you speak to us by your spirit and through your word. Encourage us, convict and be at work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. It would be a great help to me if you're able to follow along with me this morning. Uh, As Colin mentioned, we're continuing our sermon series looking to answer the question, who is the one who is to come? And the purpose of this series is just to slow down, to stop, to meditate and reflect on the one who comes at Christmas in the manger. Now, with only 27 days until Christmas... Uh, I can already sense uh, the Christmas spirit uh, starting to descend upon us all. Music in the shops, Advent calendars up, uh, candles being lit. And in the midst of all of that, it can be very easy, can't it, to rely upon what the makers of the Hallmark card uh, say about who Jesus is. Uh, Before you know where you are, you'll be... Or, uh, there at Christmas, and if you're anything like me, on Christmas Eve at 10.30, you'll be running around the local petrol station, convincing yourself that you can buy a worthy gift for your wife from the petrol station. Uh, let me tell you, gentlemen, you can't. Uh, and then the very, the next day, before you know where you are, you're at the Christmas service, you're at the baby and the manger. And so what we're doing through this series is trying to apply a small corrective uh, and to look at some mountaintop pieces of scripture uh, that paint a glorious view uh, of who Jesus is. And so far we've looked at the letter uh, to the churches in Colossae, and there we've seen the preeminence uh, of Christ, that he is indeed before all things. Uh, Last week we were in Hebrews, uh, and there we saw the supremacy of Christ, that he is indeed uh, ahead of all things. And today we're going to be looking in the book of Revelation, chapters 1 and 5, which we had read, and we were looking at the majesty of Jesus. And... As we look at these sections of scripture, I'd like us to see uh, just two things uh, this morning. Uh, Firstly, that Jesus is the one who is uh, truly majestic, a king without equal. And secondly, uh, that Jesus is worthy of worship. So firstly, the one who is majestic, and secondly, uh, the one who is worthy of worship. Majestic and worship. Uh, But before we dig into our reading, let me just give you uh, a little bit of background uh, to what we're going to see so that we have uh, the right context uh, as we engage with our reading. Uh, Firstly, we need to be sensitive to the type of writing uh, that we have in our hands this morning to understand the genre of uh, what it is that we are looking at. And the Bible is, you know, it's made of lots of different sorts of genre, isn't it? Uh, we've got books of history, like One and Two Kings. We have poetry uh, in the Psalms. We have wisdom literature. We have prophecy. We have eyewitness testimony. We have letters. So we need to know what it is that we're reading uh, so that we can actually engage with it properly. Writings of poetry are different uh, from writings of history. And the book of Revelation is apocalyptic writing. Uh, The word apocalypse uh, comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which literally just means unveiling, just revealing, a revelation. And revelation, the letter that you have in your hand, is a circular letter. 
It was sent to seven churches in what is now modern-day Turkey, and it contains revelation, and it also contains prophecy. And it was written to churches who were being persecuted for their faith. And in the face of that persecution, the churches had one of two options. They could either hold fast to the word of God, or they could turn away from it. Either hold on to the gospel, or to retreat from the word of truth. And the danger was that uh, the churches would retreat, that their hearts would no longer be captivated by the gospel. And we see that some of the churches were starting to follow the way of the world around them. Some of the churches claimed that they were Christians, but they had indeed replaced faith with religion. Some had simply grown lukewarm. Uh, They might say that they liked Christ and Christianity, but they would probably say, don't get carried away. Don't make it, don't let it take over your life. If there's something better you'd like to do, then crack on and do it. So the letters written to churches facing persecution, like many churches in Asia or in the Middle East today. And the letter reveals to them what is really happening in the spiritual realm. It lifts the curtain between the material world and the spiritual world. So that we can get a glimpse into what is really happening what's really going on in the heavenly realms and seeing what's really happening encourages and strengthens the christians to keep going and if you're in a church that's being faithful to jesus receiving a letter like this is a huge encouragement to you but if you're in a church that's tempted to fall away or indeed has already fallen away This letter provides the sharpest possible warning imaginable about the consequences of falling away. It also provides the most striking images of what will happen in the event that we choose not to trust in Christ and actually acts as a huge motivation to turn back to Jesus and also to spur us who believe to evangelize those who don't believe, to tell people about Jesus. And as we look at these parts of Revelation, I'll just be lifting out uh, certain key ideas that help us to see a little bit more of who Jesus is. I mean, there's so much in these verses, but what all we're doing this morning is a 30,000 foot view of what uh, uh, of who Jesus is. So with that in mind, let's turn to Revelation one and look at our first point, majesty. John, the writer of the book of Revelation, describes himself as being taken up in the spirit and he finds himself behind the curtain that separates the earthly from the heavenly. He hears a loud voice speaking to him from behind. And as he turns around, this is what we are told. Uh, Read with me uh, verses 12 through 18. He writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the shining sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, 
I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The sight that John beholds is so magnificent and so terrifying that he says in verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, a few years ago, uh, Hannah uh, uh, and I uh, to her DOV, uh, collect her gold DOV award. And we were in a really large room filled with parents on one side uh, and their children on the other, uh, all carefully seated and expectant. And then the late Prince Philip enters the room, just to pass by uh, and to wave. I think that's the closest I've ever been to royalty. Uh, but let me tell you, uh, at his sight, I did not fall face down as though dead. Even when I see images of people meeting the real queen, the queen, uh, the head of our state, I still don't see people falling down on their face as though dead. But John here, seeing this figure, seeing Jesus in his heavenly power and majesty, the one true king, the king above all kings, John is completely undone. What does John see? Very quickly, I want us to see six things. Firstly, take a look in verse 13. Uh, we're told that we see someone like the son, like a son of man. Uh, this person that John sees is human in likeness. And yet also with the power and authority granted to the person that was revealed in a vision to Daniel recorded in the Old Testament. And this is the figure that we'll be looking at next week. The one that John sees is wearing the clothing of a king, long robes, a golden sash around his chest. There is absolutely no doubt in John's mind that the person that he sees is a king. Secondly, John goes on to describe what sort of king this person is. Take a look in verse 14. The hair on his head is white, white like wool or snow. And this is testimony to this man's extreme age. Uh, the white hair that I have is a uh, testament to 50 years, uh, but I have a head of hair. Uh, but uh, to have a head of hair that is like this king, pure white, it speaks of something or someone who is much older than the 30 years that he had in his earthly ministry. This is pointing to uh, a whiteness that points deliberately to a king who existed before all time. He existed prior to the incarnation prior to the time that John knew him as a carpenter in Galilee. The one who came as the baby in the manger at Christmas is the pre-existent king. Thirdly, take a look in verse 14. His eyes are like fire. Eyes like fire suggest that as this king looks on, he's able to burn away anything that attempts to conceal, to deflect, or to camouflage. This is a seeing that is piercing able to look into the very heart and soul of those that the king looks upon. That in an instant, if you like, a mere glance, and this king can comprehend and judge even the most hidden of all mysteries, the things that we might try to hide, those things that we bury deep in our minds and in our hearts. A look for this king will discern all things. When this king looks on, there is nothing that is hidden, and we can't hide anything. These are the eyes of a judge who can and will judge righteously, impartially, and ultimately. Fourthly, take a look at verse 15. 
His feet were like burnished bronze. Now, bronze is often used in the Bible to speak of judgment of God. Uh, The king that John sees is one who will ensure that all wrongs are righted at the end of time. Not only is this one who can see all of the heart's desires, but he is the one who has the power to correct all things. Fifthly, again in verse 15, take a look. Uh, He has the voice like the roar of many waters. Now, the image here is of a waterfall that I stood beside uh, in Iceland. It's probably the biggest waterfall I've been to. Actually, it's not that big. But as I stood beside it, there was a deafening roar. And if you imagine standing beside Niagara or some other huge fall, you can't hear yourself think, such is the din of that waterfall. And that's the sound that this imagery is painting. It's an unfathomably loud roar like we've never heard before. Sixthly, out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. Now the words that are spoken by this king are piercing, they're sharp, they're cutting, they will separate and reveal and do that absolutely irresistibly with the power to separate spirit and soul, joints and marrow. Now, as we dwell on these verses uh, and what they tell us about Jesus, I wonder, what, what should we conclude? What should be in our minds as we, as we dwell on these verses? I think it shows us that this is the one who is above and before all things, the true king of kings, who stands above all with all power and the one who will judge rightly at the end of all time. Now, as we and our friends rush towards the manger, it can be tempting, can't it, to think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But the picture in Revelation of Jesus is of Jesus in his majesty. And it's so great, so vast, that as we dwell on those verses, if we really stop to meditate on those verses, it will make us weak at the knees. It really will. So this is the one who's come to be born as a child in a manger. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So as the letter of Revelation goes on, uh, is it's read by the churches that it's sent to, to those who are turning away from the faith, the letter starts by revealing to them the power and the majesty of Jesus. It shows them that if they are tempted to think of Jesus as being only a man who was killed by the Romans, that they should stop And dwell upon the reality of who Jesus really is. The reality that's been revealed as the curtain between the material and the spiritual realms is lifted. And as we get a glimpse in, as we get to look behind the curtain and see Jesus in his majesty and his power as well. And it's an encouragement to the churches that the letter sent to. It reveals to them that the king that the Christians follow is superior and ahead of and far above all the kings that are persecuting them. And that's an encouragement to us as well. It's the same king. Whoever is troubling us, the Lord Jesus stands as king above all kings. So as the curtain's been lifted up and we see the king of all kings, what should our response be? To seeing. And how is this kingly power, this real kingly power, revealed? And what lies at the heart of heaven? And that brings us to our second point Revelation. 
5. It brings us to the idea of worship. Now, Revelation 5 takes us straight into the heart of heaven, into the very throne room. And just ahead of Revelation 5, we have Revelation 4, where John paints the most amazing picture of what it's like to be in the throne room. John tells us that the throne room is made of lavish jewels. Uh, The throne is surrounded by a sea of glass. And the throne room in that place is where the glory of God comes to rest. And it's just amazing. The magnificence of God as he rests in creation, all of creation is splintering, is cracking, is bending uh, because of the glory of God. You have peals of thunder, you have lightning. Creation struggles to hold the majesty and the glory of God. And that's the throne room that as we come into Revelation 5, that's the throne room uh, that we come into. And this is what we read. Revelation 5 verses 1 to 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, God's redemptive purposes, the gathering of God's people in a new heavens and a new earth together with the final judgment on those who have rebelled against God. All of this is written uh, in this scroll. But the scroll can only be opened by someone who's worthy. And we're told in verse 2, and the cry goes out, who is worthy? Who is worthy? No one. No one in heaven or on earth or below the earth was worthy. No one who was created. No one who was born in heaven or on earth was worthy to open the scroll and bring God's redemptive plans to their completion. Now, this morning, I'm not going to try to unpack the scroll, its contents, it's written on two sides, and its seven seals. Uh, this morning, all we're going to do is look at the one who is worthy. So take a look at verse 5. And we're told in verse 5 that there is someone who is worthy. That there is someone through whom God's plans will be brought to their completion. Someone who is able to put all things right, to judge rightly, who has the power and the authority to do that. And we're told that the one who can do that is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. And that's the name of God's anointed and appointed Messiah and King. Now, imagine, if you will, that this is a Hollywood film. Uh, We've seen in chapter one the most amazing image of the one true king. Uh, That's the one who's all-powerful, the one who has all authority, uh, the one who was before all things, the one who sees everything and speaks a powerful word. And here we have the most daunting and highest challenges of all. Who is worthy to take and open the scroll? Who can complete God's plans for all of creation? Now, surely, if Hollywood were casting this next scene... 
the figure that is revealed in Revelation 1 would be the person that enters stage left. That's the person that you imagine would be the one that would step forward. Surely that's the figure that would come into view as we read on. Surely there is no greater champion than the king revealed in Revelation 1. Surely you'd be thinking that's what the persecuted Christians need to see more than anything else that this most powerful of all figures is the one who steps forward to take the scroll and the Hollywood cameraman would zoom in to the handover of the scroll and there'd be stirring anthemic music that would play. But that's not what we see. Take a look with me at verses 6 and 7. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The champion of heaven, the one who is worthy, is a lamb, we read in verse 6. And more than that, it's a lamb... That was slain. And in verse 7 we read that this was the one that would take the scroll from him who sat on the throne. And that's just an amazing truth, isn't it? And that's just worth dwelling on for a few moments. What John writes here is that the one who is worthy is a lamb. Uh, And let me just get technical here for a moment. Uh, In the Greek, uh, this isn't a word for an adult lamb. It's a word for a very young lamb. And the word which is translated slain uh, is, is literally has been slaughtered, killed as a sacrifice. Uh, and again, just technical, uh, the grammar that's used in this phrase here is one of slain once as an action that was done once, completed, is permanent and enduring. It's a once and for all sacrifice. This lamb is the one true king who is above all things, before all things, who has the power to create all things, who is the exact representation of God. This is the lion of Judah that becomes the Passover lamb. Uh, I wonder, do you see what we have here? Right at the heart of uh, the throne room in heaven is the gospel. The very core of the throne room revolves around the gospel. Uh, The good news of Jesus. That even though Jesus is the one who was before all things, the one who is worthy, he is the one who laid down all his glory to come to us as a baby. The one who was beyond and above all creation. He came into our world. Not mighty, but vulnerable. Not invincible, but killable. Not to bring judgment upon us, but to bear our judgment. Jesus comes to give life. And he came and he lived the life that we should have lived. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength. And then he died the death that we deserve. In our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
So he came to rescue us from that judgment, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And that's the truth that is right at the very heart of the throne room in heaven. And that's a mind-boggling truth, isn't it? Uh, the writer, uh, Jan Martel, uh, has as the main protagonist of his book, Pi, in the book, The Life of Pi. Uh, and in it, uh, he writes a, of a conversation that he has with a local priest, uh, Father Martin. And Pi's under- trying to understand why God would let his son die and, and what that meant. Uh, Pi can see nothing good in it. And his assertion is that it must ruin heaven. And this is what we read. This is Pi speaking. That a god should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face uh, their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers and usurpers. Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation? Death? I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped, naked, whipped, mocked, dragged through the streets and to top it off, crucified and at the hands of mere humans to boot. I'd never heard of a Hindu god dying. Devils and monsters did, as did mortals by the thousands and millions. But divinity should not be blighted by death. It's wrong. The world soul cannot die, even in one contained part of it. It was wrong of this Christian god to let his son die. That is tantamount to letting a part of himself die. For if the son is to die... It cannot be fake. The death of the son must be real. Father Martin assured me it was. But once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected, the son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. The Trinity must be tainted by it. There must be a certain stench at the right hand of God the Father. The horror must be real. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? Father Martin looked up and answered, Love. Love. And that's the truth right at the heart of the throne room. The Lamb was slain for us, the gospel, a perpetual revelation of God's love, of God's mercy, his righteousness and his justice, all there forever. And what's the right response to the gospel? Uh, Take a look uh, with me at what happens as the Lamb steps forward in verses uh, 9 to 10 in chapter 5. We read this. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. They sang a new song. They sang a song of worship. When the lamb takes the scroll, those in the throne room burst into song, burst into worship. And their worship is rooted in the gospel, the one who is worthy, the one who was worthy to be slain. And it's through the pouring out of Christ's blood that we have been purchased for God, that we have been made right. And notice it's not because of anything that we've done. It's because of everything that God has done. And this offer of salvation is available to all people, 
every tribe and language and nation. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter if you've been a bank robber, a murderer, a drug dealer. If you're young, if you're old, if you're black, if you're white, if you're yellow, if you're brown, or if you're trans, if you're gay or hetero. This offer of salvation, of being made right with God, is an offer that is open to all. It costs you nothing, but it changes everything. And if you're not in a place this morning where you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I wonder what's stopping you from coming to the one who is above all things. The one who knew you before the foundation of the world. The one who came to die to bring you into right relationship with God. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering, maybe that is something for me, chat with Colin after the service. Chat with me. We'd love to pray with you. So what does it all mean for us today? Uh, Three quick things to close. Firstly... Dwell on the gospel. Uh, Sometimes uh, we can think that we know the gospel, right? Yeah, 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 I know the gospel. Yeah, Jesus came, uh, he died for my sins, I know that. Now take me to the deeper truths, take me to those bigger uh, revelations. As one American preacher said, the gospel isn't the ABC of Christianity, it's the A to Z. That's why it only works as if you're an American, A to Z. Uh, In 1 Peter 1, uh, we're told that the gospel is so wonderful uh, that the angelic hosts in heaven are peering down. They're looking over, straining their necks to look into the gospel. And the gospel is so wonderful that the angels in heaven long to look into it. They never tire of looking into it. Uh, And I wonder, do, do we have that same wonder? Do we have that same longing to look deeper into the gospel? Do we have that same sense of awe and delight as the heavenly hosts have? Uh, Secondly, on our Christian journey, don't stop at the manger. Yeah, As we have been looking into the throne room of heaven, we've seen that all of history, all of eternity points to and is driven by the lamb that was slain. So when we get to the manger, having dwelt on the majesty of Christ, let's lift our eyes and look forward to Easter. Yeah, Christmas is the way marker to God's plan of ultimate salvation. The lamb that was slain for us. The more that uh, that we can see of Christmas and Easter together, the more enriching and more strengthening that our Christian faith will be to us. And thirdly, ask ourselves a question. Uh, Is our life marked by worship? As we dwell on the gospel, does worship just pop out? Does worship just ooze from every awe uh, every pore in our body. Uh, as we sing here this morning, uh, is our, you know, are our hearts ablaze with what God has done for us? Or are we thinking about, I've got to get dinner ready. I wonder what I'm doing later in the week. Are, are our minds distracted? But I'm not speaking here just about sung worship. Uh, but worship in, in the sense that are we able to offer God all areas of our life in response to what he has done for us? Are we able to offer our time to those who need to be listened to? Are we quick to be generous with our money and offer that as worship in response to what God has done for us? Are we able to respond in worship by speaking to people about the reason that we have for the hope that we have in Christ? 
Are we able to love our wife or husband as an act of worship in response to the gospel? Now, if you struggle in any of those areas, then my prayer for you is that you would dwell on the gospel. Uh, dwell on what you've been saved from. Pray with thanks about your salvation. And dwell on the promises that are yours in Christ. And let that set your heart ablaze with love for him. The king who came as a lamb for you. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for the gospel. Help us to continue to reflect on all that you have done for us in Christ. Help our hearts to be touched by the truth that the gospel is right at the heart of heaven. And as you work in our lives, allow us to bring the gospel to the very core of our own being. Transform our lives that we might become living sacrifices, becoming more like your son for our good and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me close, as we think of the majesty of Christ, let me close with the words from Jude, the doxology from Jude, which says this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen.